Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. It's time to let it roll. The podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. This week, Nate is joined by author Joe Nick Potosky for the second of three episodes discussing his biography of Willie Nelson, an epic life. In this episode, Joe Nick tells us why Willie wasn't satisfied as one of Nashville's top songwriters and about his long struggle with the country music establishment. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome to Let It Roll. This is your host, Nate Wilcox. I'm joined once again by Joe Nick Potosky, author of Willie Nelson, An Epic Life. And it is an epic life, so epic, uh, it's going to take more than one episode to cover it. So thanks so much for coming back, Joe Nick. Sure, anytime. And so... When last we heard from Willie Nelson, he's breaking into Nashville, and he broke in quick as a songwriter, uh, got uh, hooked up with Hank Cochran and and Ray Price's publishing company, Pamper Music, and then fairly quickly sold a song to Farron Young, Hello Walls. That was his first big hit as a songwriter. How'd that change the game for Willie? Well, money came in. (laughs) Mailbox money uh, and recognition. I mean, that's probably, I don't know which is more important the the success of of the song brought sort of financial stability to Willie and I say sort of because it basically gave him the wherewithal to subsidize performing which became as important to him as his success as a songwriter but it, it brought stability and it brought recognition and you know people were looking at this guy you know hey I want I want some of his songs this guy's a really good songwriter. He's, he's, you know, he, he's, he's established. He's, uh, he, he works with Ray Price. Things started just coming his way, but I don't think what people recognized was internally, uh, that was one form of success in getting your, you know, having successful songs recorded by others, but he wanted to be those people. He wanted to be the performer that sung the songs. And it was a hard, uh, it was really a hard road to hoe 
It was not being a Cherokee cowboy where the crowds are guaranteed. It was being, <laughs> it, it was being Nashville recording artist, Willie Nelson. And, you know, most of the time people didn't know who he was, but he worked it hard. And about the only place that there was dependable money, if you're playing live, was uh, for him was coming back to Texas. So it's like that round trip uh, every weekend to come to uh, to what you know was considered hallowed ground. He could play Fort Worth and and play Panther Hall. He could play Dallas. There were clubs there. He could play Houston, San Antonio, Austin. All these cities were part of the uh, country western circuit that you know Willie jumped on. But he was a minor figure. At, I will say that by the mid-60s, he, he was starting to develop enough of a draw in Texas where he was established, and uh, he was a name. But he still wasn't selling records, and he was still depending on the publishing to make ends meet. And it was, uh, it was a struggle. And, and during, that, during that period, he's also touring coast-to-coast, He's going up to as far as Canada. He's going down to Florida, and it's like you know running around in a station wagon, pulling a trailer, and it's a it's a horrible life. It's not glamorous at all, and yet he wanted to do it because he kept thinking all he needed was you know one hit under his own name, and he could be Ray Price. But he, it wasn't as easy as he as he thought. And he had a. I want to. I want to cover his biggest hits as a songwriter for a woman named Patsy Cline, who was not yeah. thrilled with his material when she first heard it. No, Hank Cochran took Willie over to Patsy's house. And, you know, Hank's job was a song slugger, and he's probably working his own songs as much. But he told Patsy uh, uh, he had a songwriter with him, and he wanted him to come inside and sing the song to her. And so Willie did. He's a little nervous because Patsy was an established star. Uh, and she just didn't like it. She thought it made her sound, it was a song called Crazy. Uh, Crazy for feeling so sorry. And a really sad song, but she thought this did not become her well. Uh, that It made her sound too vulnerable and too weak. And she was a pretty strong female personality her she had a strong voice uh she was not a weak singer she did not project weakness so that was understood but hank was smart enough to go take it also to patsy's producer owen bradley and owen loved the song and so it was one of those deals okay patsy owen owen's in the studio with her okay patsy we're gonna do one of yours and then we're gonna do one of mine and that's the way they worked in Nashville at the time. And, and Owen was able to, uh, to get the song in, uh, Patsy did a good enough take and without really realizing it, recorded the song of her life. I mean, she had a lot of hits and, you know, walking after midnight songs like that, but, uh, nothing came close to crazy. And, uh, similarly for Willie, no song, whether it was funny how time slips away, which was, which was covered by Joe Hinton as an R&B song uh, in, uh, in Nightlife. Uh, all these songs, no, none of them compared to what Crazy did for Patsy Cline. And that's the mailbox money that kept Willie 
at least paying the bills for the rest of the time that he stayed in Nashville. And and that sort of set him up to sign a record deal with Liberty Records. And he also gets involved with a woman who became his second wife and did a duet. He had two top ten hit singles the last time, first time and last time he's going to get anywhere near the country top ten all the way until 1975. Tell us a little bit about Shirley and Liberty Records and that whole Willie's first hits. Willie was such a good songwriter that, uh, as was the custom in Nashville, if you're a good songwriter, you can go ahead and record your own stuff. And if nothing else, there's a great demo of 12 of your songs that you can pass around. Liberty Records did not intend, uh, I don't think, they didn't have designs on um, that Willie was going to be a great star. Although the head of Liberty Records, Joe Allison, uh, was a Texan, and he was very interested in doing what Ken Nelson did in uh, uh, with the Bakersfield sound and Capitol Records in Los Angeles. He kind of took country music out of its uh, uh, comfort zone and was recording in L.A., and, and uh, Willie had that benefit. He got to do some of his recording was done in, in Nashville with Grady Martin playing guitar. That's where he first met Grady. And then some of his sessions were done in LA where he had, uh, he had the bassist red calendar and the drummer Earl Palmer as his rhythm section. These are rhythm and blues and jazz legends. Earl Palmer's from new Orleans. Red calendar is one of the best jazz bassists out there anywhere. So it was a very non-traditional uh, country ensemble that he was working with in L.A. Leon Russell played piano for him. They didn't know each other then, uh, but they would get to know each other later. And those recordings are tremendous because they really show, you know, kind of the modern country sound that Ken Nelson and Joe Allison were making it sound more like. It, it wasn't pop so much, but more like uh, almost easy listening and, and, and real jazzy. It was, it was sophisticated, uh, not a whole lot of pedal steel. And on these sessions, uh, a female, female singer was brought in uh, whose name was Shirley Colley. She was married to pretty prominent Houston radio disc jockey named Biff Colley. She was a singer of her own right from Missouri and a uh, really good singer. She'd had uh, some success on her own. And she came to sing harmonies uh, with Willie Hugh Nelson on his first recordings for Liberty. And in fact, uh, they hit with two top 10 singles. It, they were duets. So it wasn't Willie and his distinctive voice. It was, it was Willie is, is a duet team, which was very common in country music at that time. So that's how he achieved success to, uh, to some degree, but it didn't really put him over the top. He would not have success like that again. He did two albums for Liberty. The second one was done with uh, Tommy Alsop, the great uh, Western swing guitarist and producer who played with Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys. And that album is just totally swing. But the album, and then I wrote, really shows you Willie's power as a songwriter in the early 60s, but also where he was going as a musician and a singer. He's offbeat. He's not a typical country singer. He sings like like a jazz singer, like Sinatra. He he sings behind the rhythm, ahead of the rhythm. He runs all over the place. And man, I tell you, my, one of my personal favorites is 
they do several versions uh, in the recording studio of Columbus Stockade Blues, traditional country song. But they do a jazz version with, with Calendar and Palmer playing. That I mean, it's jazz. And they're scat singing almost. And you hear these two people singing, and you realize Willie Nelson in the studio falls in love with her voice. And then he falls in love with the rest of her. And he leaves his first wife, Martha, and runs off with Shirley. And they perform together. Uh, uh, they make music together. And they try to start a life together. And it works for a few years until it doesn't. Uh, and during this period of time, Willie also does, he leaves Liberty. Uh, he does a one-off. He does a single for Monument Records in, in the great Fred Foster. And he records a song that's actually Fred puts out on Monument, releases it a single called I Never Cared For You, which is so uncountry. It's a haunting song, but it's so deep and so complex with lyrics that this ain't country. And in fact, when it's released as a single, uh, it gets a little bit of airplay in Houston. But uh, the promo men don't just push it on the country station. It, it winds up on the pop station. Houston's probably the only place where it's, it's on a top 40 radio format. And it's not a, a huge success as a single. But it's out there. And it shows Willie's depth as a songwriter. And of course, while he's with Monument ever so briefly, it falls apart after that single. But Willie plays a song for Fred that knocks Fred out. And it's a Christmas song that Willie, Willie wrote that immediately Fred calls over to London and gets his top act on Monument Records, Roy Orbison, together with <laughs> the London Symphony Orchestra. And they record Willie's song in, 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 in rapid time in a matter of days so they can get it out for Christmas called Pretty Papers. And that becomes another top 10 hit, but not for Will. And he's lucky enough after his flirtation with Monument, he gets on the Grand Old Opry as a cast member. Doesn't even last a year, though, because he's out there traveling on Saturday nights. He's trying to make money. But he lands where he's wanted to land from the start, and that's the best label, the premier label in in, in Nashville, RCA Records, uh, overseen by Chet Atkins. And that begins a period of recordings for RCA in which Chet tries every which way to break Willie. He's a country folk artist, giving him artistic control, uh, uh, working with producers like Felton Jarvis, who's got Elvis, every which way, and nothing works. And around the same time, Willie meets a guy who's soon to be signed by Chet Atkins to RCA, meets him out in Arizona, a guy named Waylon Jennings. What was their relationship like throughout this period? You know, when, when Willie stumbled upon Waylon Jennings working in Phoenix, Arizona at JD's and packing the joint, this club that's got all, it's got, it, it's a, a club that's got multi-levels and, and other kinds of music. But this is, this is the stuff. I mean, this is the bomb. And, and when he sees Waylon playing and packing out this joint, and Waylon's making over $1,000 a night in, in the early 1960s, 
and they talk. There's two Texans there. Waylon's from Littlefield. Willie's from Abbott. They both have aspirations, and 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 Waylon talks about wanting to go to to Nashville to make it. And Willie sees the setup. Waylon's got it. JD. He said, "If you go, let me know. I want your gig, because this is where it's at. Waylon's making money." And in country music, even though Willie was supposedly a successful songwriter, he wasn't making money like this playing live. He wasn't getting by at all. So this begins a relationship, a friendship. And it's more like, how do you do this? Well, this is how I do it. How do you do this? Where do you play here? This is where I play. And throughout the rest of the 60s, uh, once Waylon hits Nashville, Waylon matures into one of the leading artists on RCA records. He's a guy with, with the hits, but he's also tilting against windmills. He doesn't like Chet Atkins sound, the Nashville sound. He doesn't like the constraints that he's under. And, but it's not until he's successful enough where he can chafe against that kind of control and get his own way that he does finally emerge as this independent artist. He's part of that Nashville system. And Willie is part of that system, too. He wants to be part of the system because he wants success. But nothing that he tries, nothing that Chet Atkin tries, nothing that other producers try seems to work. And towards the end of his run in Nashville, he's got two big events that happen. One is that his, his home in Ridgetop outside Nashville burns down. And the second is he gets a letter to his house uh, from a woman named Connie telling him she's had his baby. How did those two things blow up his Nashville life and send him back to Texas? Willie is successful enough, even while he's struggling as a performer, to move to a place uh, outside of Nashville to a farm called Ridgetop, where actually when he's touring, he, he describes himself in the souvenir program as a hog farmer and it's a big enough piece of land that members of his band uh join in they 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 move in uh uh wade ray one of his his good friends the fiddler that plays with him uh he and his wife move in and Ray wade ray turns him on to this kind of spiritual uh um uh, uh religious kind of thought called astara so Willie starts thinking pretty deep. Uh, he actually gets his mom and her husband and his dad and his wife. They both have places there. So it becomes this kind of, it's a commune without it being a commune. And they may be dabbling in psychedelics, but they don't look like hippies. I mean, he's got a hippie operation going up in Ridgetop. And it's a pretty good life. Um, <laughs> and everything's going along pretty well but two two great events happen and one is uh, when uh, a letter is sent from a Houston hospital uh, which is uh, it's a bill for uh, a birth that a woman named Connie Kep Kepke who heard the song I Never Cared For You on KILT Top 40 radio in Houston. Liked it so much, she sought out Willie Nelson, saw him at a gig at the Esquire Club and fell in love with him, and he fell in love with her, and she had his child, and the birth bill 
goes to Ridgetop and is opened by Shirley Collie Nelson, and she flips out. There's a lot of fur flying there, folks. And uh, Shirley leaves, and Connie shows up and moves in, and it's kind of a, a, a kind of settled. But uh, lucky for Willie, lucky for everyone, uh, his mom's husband is has wired the house in Ridgetop, Willie's house, and is such a lousy electrician. It sparks a fire right before Christmas 1970. And his house burns down. Their house burns down. And they have to go do something. I mean, there's, there's no house anymore. Well, before that, as the house is burning, Willie gets word, runs up to the house and, and pulls out his guitar and a brick of, of Colombian weed uh, because he's got his priorities straight. And then the family's going to figure out what to do next. And as it is, a uh, his promoter in Texas told him there's a, a bankrupt dude ranch in Bandera outside of San Antonio. Why don't you take the band there? Y'all can live there for a while. Uh, you can spend the winter here and figure out what to do next. And you can also, you can gig over there at John T. Flores store in Lotus. So that's what they do. So it's Shirley getting the letter that ends the Shirley period right there. The marriage is not going well. And, and frankly, Shirley's life has been horrible ever since she married Willie because she's, she's, she's not the singer anymore. They try performing for a while together. And then the next thing, you know, she's, she's a housewife and that wasn't cut out for her. So that ended. And here comes Connie, uh, uh, his new wife and with whom, uh, Willie has two children, uh, Paula and Amy that, you know, those things happening, that, that changes things in his life. But it's really the big move to Bandera from the fire is the best thing that ever happened. He keeps going back to, to Nashville and records another album there. Uh, and there's talk for a while about, oh, you know, rebuilding. The longer they stay in Bandera, the less that is a reality. And in fact, Willie's discovering Texas is a pretty good place. It's always been sacred ground to play in and make money. So, you know, screw recording for a while. Just go play. This is where he can make money. And he plays every Saturday night at John T. Flores' store. But he's also playing Houston. He's playing Austin. Uh, uh, he's playing up in, in Dallas and Fort Worth. And he's making money. So the idea is they're going to, uh, he and Connie are going to get a condo in, in Houston. And just stay in Houston. Screw Nashville. Maybe if he can get a another deal or or... or another album going with, with Chet, uh, he, he can fly up there and, and do some recording. But all that falls apart. All those ideas pretty much end when the band is going to go to Austin. They're in their, their, <laughs> their Winnebago, which is a so torn down Winnebago, barely, you know, it's duct taped together. And they're going to go to Austin and visit Bobby. But and they're staying in Bandera. They happen to stop off in, in Kerrville. They they see a hippie chick on the side of the road. They pick her up. Where's she going? Well, I'm going to the Armadillo World Headquarters in Austin. Can you let me off? And when the band lets this hippie chick off at the Armadillo, they learn real quick, hey, you know, there's something here. 
And, you know, after visiting Bobby, it's one thing. And Connie told me that there was a point when they're just hanging around Austin and they drove across the river, Town Lake it's called, but it's the Colorado River. And they drove across the South First Street Bridge. And and it was like, you know, towards the end of the day, the sun was setting. And it just looked real beautiful to them both. And, and they just kind of turned to each other. And you know, Houston doesn't have this. No, it doesn't. And, you know, it doesn't have these places. Let's stay here. And they do. And that's decision to uh, get an apartment in Austin instead of going to Houston is where it really all begins. And so we've got Willie Nelson moved to Austin. But before we leave RCA Records behind, he records a couple, at least one album, that I think is a big part of building his catalog for the coming explosion. Can you tell us a little bit about the Yesterday's Wine album? Yeah, Yesterday's Wine was towards the end of his RCA recording period. And I don't think any album reflected what was going on at Ridgetop as far as developing different ideas, kind of having a bunch of people living together and, and, you know, having many others uh, around you than this album. And again, I go back to this. uh, It's, it's not a spiritual line of thought called Astara uh, that Wade Ray, uh, the fiddle player and his wife both embraced. Uh, They start talking to Willie about it and just different ideas about consciousness and, and, you know, what are we doing here on earth and all, all this spirituality. And you mix that in with a little bit of uh, uh, psychedelics kind of entering the scene and you get this album that for all practical purposes, looks like a classic RCA recording out of Nashville, 1968, 69. It's called yesterday's Wine. And it's a sketch of Willie on the cover. And he's wearing a straw hat. You know, nice. But <laughs> you you put the needle onto the vinyl and you start to let it play. And it's <laughs> it's the voice of God asking, do you know why you're here? I mean, this stuff is, it's deep. It's heavy. And then, you know, you go into a song like Yesterday's Wine, which you can edit down into a two-minute uh Nice Texas two-step dance tune. Fine, you know, it, it, it's it's a it's not a significant song other than a nice little ditty. But you put it in the context of this album. This is a concept album, and it's all about you know man on man facing his mortality, and and the question of you know what what are people doing here on this this earth. What are you doing here on this earth? Uh, way too deep for country music. Johnny Cash may have been consorting with Bob Dylan at the time, and there might have been the sound called uh, country folk, which meant that, you know, uh, deeper lyrics, Bobby Bear, people like that were doing bullshit. This album was so far out there that no one knew what to do with it. And the only reason I was hip to it was someone wrote a review of it in Rolling Stone magazine. There must have been some some uh, homesick Texans that that were dropping acid and, and missing the steel guitar in San Francisco that got it 
because it really seemed to come out of, you know, there were a handful of hipsters in San Francisco that, that figured this out. And like, you want to, you want depth, you want one of the best albums about life and death that's ever been made, get past this country music soundtrack and go dig deep. But no one got it. And I remember I, I was in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I was doing uh, exile up there and listening to that record album. And it's just like me and that record, uh, you know, wasn't something you, I didn't play it for a lot of people. I didn't dance to it and all that. I listened and I'm not that kind of, something's got to move me physically first, but this was just deep, deep, deep. I had known Willie Nelson at that time as that friendly country, country Western singer who was always plugging, uh, uh, the, the Cowtown Jamboree at Panther Hall every Saturday night. He was on Channel 11 shilling for all the acts that were playing live at the Country Music Joint in Fort Worth that night. And Willie was on it so often, you just thought he was from Fort Worth. You didn't realize he was driving down from Nashville all this time. And, you know, he was he looked odd. He kind of had, you know, he dressed sort of like uh, he'd been reading Playboy magazine. He wore turtlenecks. He didn't look like a regular country guy and he, you know he had kind of slicked hair uh he he, he, <laughs> he he did not fit the country stereotype and then you see him on the cover of this yesterday's one he looks like a cowboy because he's got a straw hat on and all this this but god almighty when you start listening to this it's the depth it to, to this day blows my mind that it even got out there and i'm sure at that point with yesterday's one Chet Atkins and everybody else at that label started wondering, why did we sign him? How much is he costing us? Because you weren't going to pull songs off of there. At least they didn't think that someone else was going to cover. And it was just like way too far out there. And that's when I really started loving Willie Nelson. And a lot of people in Austin started having the same reaction to Willie around this time. He, he discovers a place called, called the Armadillo World Headquarters. Tell us a little bit about that, what that meant for Willie and his career. Yeah, w- once Willie landed in Austin, uh, it rubbed off on him pretty quick. And I remember when Lana, his oldest daughter, finally arrived in Austin from Nashville. She was about six months behind once Willie decided to stay in Austin get an apartment on Riverside Drive. And Daddy picked her up at the airport, and Daddy was wearing cut-off shorts. He had a little diamond stud in his ear, and his hair was growing over his ears. And she knew Daddy was going through some changes. Austin was rubbing off on it. Uh, it was different here. Uh, and I'm speaking of Austin. And she knew it, and he knew it, and everybody else knew it. And he started cluing in on it by just hanging around. He'd go to clubs, and... Uh, you know, he wandered into this joint where he, he heard for the first time Free and the Fire Dogs, which were these college-age hippie kids, and they were playing traditional country. You know, pretty amusing and interesting, and they were pretty good. I mean, they weren't as good as what he heard in Nashville, but they were good. And he kind of this is interesting, long hairs playing straight-up country. Uh, that's nice. And wandered to a place like Soap Creek Saloon, and you hear rhythm and blues going on, and uh that's pretty cool, except these were people that looked like him playing the rhythm and blues. And and he played an anti-war rally. And it was for uh, George McGovern was running for president in the summer of 1972 in Woolridge Park. 
and he played with a band called Conqueroo, which was a hippie band that had been back and forth uh, San Francisco and recorded a little bit there. And another kind of hippie band that was big at this place called the Armadillo World Headquarters. They were one of the house bands. It was called they were a band called Greasy Wheels, and they were an interesting band because they had this fiddler, and they played hippie rock and they played some kind of sort of countryish stuff. But man, when when Sweet Mary Egan whipped out the fiddle to play Orange Blossom Special, all the hippies would go wild and start screaming and doing a hoedown and going nuts. Well, Willie saw Greasy Wheels open up at this uh, Woolridge Park anti-war benefit before he went on, and he asked Sweet Mary Egan would he would she sit in with him, and she did, which added a lot because Willie was just carrying Paul English and B Spears, a two-piece band. So Sweet Mary added a lot to it. And it kind of put bees in the bonnet. Uh, Willie went over pretty good at this anti-war rally. There were no country fans at this rally, trust me. Uh, but did pretty well to where like a couple weeks later, he, he and Paul went over to the Armadillo World Headquarters, which they first saw when they were driving to Austin to go visit Bobby. And they let a hippie chick out at the Armadillo. And that's where she wanted to ride to. And they started putting two, two together and thought, you want to tap into a new audience like these hippies like get this and a war benefit, go get a gig at Armadillo. And thankfully, fortunately, when they showed up in the beer garden, uh, the booking agent, Bobby, Bobby Hedron was there with, with the, the head honcho, Eddie Wilson. And Eddie had just come back from San Francisco where he had been selling off some weed so he could keep the Armadillo going to pay with the bills. And while he's out in San Francisco, a guy he was staying with was playing nothing but Willie Nelson records. And in fact, that was yesterday's wine album Eddie had heard. So when Willie Nelson graced the Armadillo beer garden with Paul English and said, uh, uh, and saw Eddie Wilson, Eddie said, I've been looking for you. And Willie said, well, here I am. I've been looking for you. And let's try to do this. Let's do country music at the Armadillo. Not a hard, not a stretch. Because Bill Monroe had already played. And it kind of blow, blew Bill Monroe's mind that hippies like bluegrass. Uh, New Riders of the Purple Sage had been in. Uh, Burrito Brothers, huge. Flying Burrito Brothers. So this country rock thing, the table was set. No one of Willie's age or his Nashville pedigree had played the armadillo. And Willie and B. Spears and Paul English took the stage and did it. And it was a half and half crowd. It wasn't even a half capacity audience, but half the crowd that did show the 400 people, half were there to see the opening act, Greasy Wheels, and Mary Egan and Reverend Cleve and that whole group. And the other half were straights, we would call them today you know, in pantsuits, leisure suits, uh, beehive hairdos. And they were enough of Willie Nelson fans that they were willing to venture inside this hippie music hall that was not air-conditioned in August, which, folks, if you don't know Texas in August and try to sit inside a place to listen to music, uh, that's a that's hard. That's just hard work as a listener as a dancer, as an audience member. Uh, but these folks were willing to turn out because it was Willie Nelson. And it was known as the date when the lions laid down with the lambs. The hippies got off, they yelled, and, and they discovered 
you know, this guy could write songs as good as that Chris Christopherson or James Taylor or anyone else could. This guy was a songwriter. He was right there with Bob Dylan, if you listen to his lyrics. And the Straits discovered uh, the hippies knew how to do country almost as good as they did. So it was really when, at a time when country music, much like today, was considered uh, uh, the domain of, of right-wing thinking and, and conservatives and and, you know, you long hairs were not welcome. And, you know, that there's this real divide. Willie bridged the divide. And he proceeded to do it in Austin and spread the word, breaking down the barriers that some some country music honky-tonks, including the, uh, the infamous Broken Spoke, which still exists today, did not let long hairs in. In fact, would refuse entry of long hairs at the door, even if they were willing to pay the money. Willie broke that down. That barrier is broken down. Of course, other bands like Freedom the Fire Dogs, Greasy Wheels, they helped break it down too. And there was a lot of different mixing of, of music. Willie was not the big dog in Austin at that time. It was it was really Michael Murphy, Willis Allen Ramsey, Jerry Jeff Walker. Uh, Doug Solomon, the Sir Douglas Quintet, these were far bigger acts. Willie was just the old man from Nashville in this mix. But within two years of playing in August 72, everything changed. And it included uh, meeting Leon Russell and discovering Leon's, you know, a new best friend. And, and I just wanted really to get to Leon. Model. Because you've got this quote about Leon Russell in the book that I want to, I want you get you to elaborate on. You said that right. Wylan Jennings had taught Willie how to fight for what he wanted. Leon Russell yep. showed Willie how to own music empire. Explain what that yes. means. Well, what Wylan did first was turn Willie on to his manager, who was this guy Neil Reshin from New York, and it kind of marked a change in country music in Nashville. Waylon got his contract renegotiated with RCA and it gave him artistic control. Now it's unusual because one, his management wasn't in Nashville where it's all an old boy system. They all know each other. Neil Reshman was a bulldog and a shark and basically hammered out a really tough contract. And then when Willie found himself off of RCA records and wanting representation, uh, Waylon said, you ought to have Neil represent you. And he did. And Neil negotiated contracts with Atlantic Records and then, most importantly, with Columbia Records that gave Willie artistic control. I mean, that, that was, you know, that was key. And now what was the second part? <laughs> About Leon Russell and uh, how oh, he showed. And then, okay, Leon shows up, starts showing up in Austin. And he's already keyed in on the Armadillo Thanks to one of his, the acts that he signed, he signed two significant acts to his Shelter Records label. One is a local folky from Austin named Willis Allen Ramsey, who makes one album that becomes the best one-off one album that you've never heard of. I mean, it's much covered. He never does another album. That's all another story. But he also signs Freddie King, the, the blues man from Gilmer and Dallas. And Freddie King somehow early on becomes magic at the Armadillo World Headquarters. The Armadillo becomes known as the house Freddie King built because he packs it out with these huge crowds that brings in enough money 
for them to improve the facility and to build it up. Well, the poster artist, best known of all the poster artists at the Armadillo World Headquarters, is a guy named Jim Franklin. He's the one that starts drawing armadillos, and it, armadillos become a symbol of Texas hippies. They're docile creatures. They, they mind their own business. They're vegetarians, but they have a hard shell exterior, which you have to do. You have to have one of those in Texas if you're different. And back in the day, you like an armadillo, you had to have a tough shell. Otherwise, you'd get your ass kicked. Well, Jim Franklin was such a distinctive artist and drew Freddie King so well. Leon Russell, who's just blown up after being a session player in L.A. in the 1960s, he goes back home to Tulsa and basically creates his own world with his own recording studios, his own video company, his own record label. He becomes the biggest act in rock and roll, period. After stealing the show from Joe Cocker on the Mad Dogs and Englishman tour, uh, Leon becomes the, the big shit. And part of his empire building is he loves Jim Franklin so much. He calls him up to Tulsa and has Jim Franklin paint his swimming pool. You know, he starts paint, painting the walls of his swimming pool. And this is Leon's world. Well, he learns about Willie Nelson or asks about Willie Nelson through Jim Franklin. Franklin says, come down to Austin with me. I'll introduce you to him. And he does. And it so happens that Willie is introduced to Jim. Willie is introduced to Leon Russell with Jim Franklin and Willis Allen Ramsey in attendance. And it's the day before Leon hangs around at the Armadillo and participates in a jam on Thanksgiving Day of 1972, a free show that's duct tape put together at the last minute. It features Leon Russell, uh, Phil Lesh, and Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead, Sweet Mary Egan from Greasy Wheels, and Doug Somm, uh, Sir Douglas, who leads the band in this great Thanksgiving Day jam, in which they play nothing but old country music standards. These are hippies. So it's just complete weirdness. So that's really Leon's introduction to Austin, and it becomes his second home. And Willie sees this guy that's created his own world in Tulsa. He has left Los Angeles. He still keeps his little finger there, and he keeps a studio there, I guess a, a residence there. But his he moves it all to where he came from. And don't think this doesn't rub off on Willie. Willie wants this. Yeah, just set it up here. This is a great place to set it up. And it's not a one-way street. Leon is the biggest act in rock and roll, but he is in the process of recording his Back to the Country Roots album, which is called Hank Wilson's Back. And so what Willie has that Leon doesn't is he's the real deal country guy. And Leon may have grown up around country. He's been in L.A. all these years around rock and roll. Willie's got the country music mojo that Leon Russell wants. And Leon Russell has the created world that Willie Nelson wants. And that friendship that started in 1972 all the way to like 1981 or 82, that's the driving friendship of Willie Nelson and the real association. Forget what all the hype is about Waylon and Willie and wanted the outlaws in Lukenbach, Texas. That's there. 
but that becomes more of a rivalry than anything. And Waylon never does figure out what the deal is with Austin. It's just a little too loose and a little too free for him. Waylon is forever a Nashville animal. He's got more creative control. He's a Nashville cat. But Leon loves what's happening in Austin. In fact, you know, when Willie creates Willie World, his ranch, his golf course recording studio at the Pergnellis Country Club west of town, Leon is as much a part of that as anyone. Coach Dale Royal is beginning to enter the scene, but Leon's there by Willie's side. And kind of by 1980, certainly by 1980, Willie is the biggest act in music, and Leon has become kind of his sidekick. The roles reverse in a matter of eight years. And you mentioned the deal that uh, Wayland's manager, Neil Russian, helped him get with Atlantic Records. And, and Jerry Wexler, the legendary A&R man at Atlantic Records, he signed Willie Nelson. He signed Doug Sommer around the same time. How'd that work out for Willie? And, and talk about the two albums uh, that Shotgun Willie and Phases and Stages that Willie cut with Atlantic. Well, the arrival of, of Jerry Wexler in Austin in late 1971 was a game changer. Jerry was a great, you know, the great rhythm and blues producer, the guy who discovered Aretha Franklin, Sam and Dave, Professor Longhair, uh, you name it. I mean, he's a mighty, mighty man in the record business. Atlantic Records gave him his own custom label called Atlantic Nashville. And he goes out, and the first two acts he signs are Doug Song, who has returned to Texas from an extended period in San Francisco and the Sir Douglas Quintet has broken up the band that had she's about a mover and Mendocino. But Jerry Wexler knows who Doug Som is. And this is a guy that not only played rock and roll and uh, rhythm and blues, he sat on Hank Williams knees as a kid. He was a child prodigy of the steel guitar. That's Jerry Wexler's first signing. Cause he thinks this guy's the greatest guy. And he can play it all. And his second signing is Willie Nelson. Now, for a label that's based in Nashville, this was crazy talk. The first signing was a guy that Nashville's never heard of. Uh, and he's a hippie. Never mind the cowboy boots. Never mind the hat. Never mind the fact that he can play fiddle and steel guitar as good as anyone in Nashville. He's a hippie. Forget him. What the hell is Jerry Wexler doing? And the second signing is this guy that just spent... 10 years with Chet Atkins and Chet couldn't do anything with him. And these are the guys he signed to a new label that Wexler must be smoking some mighty strong weed. Well, okay. That's Nashville. But when Jerry shows up in, in Austin, the music scene is immediately legitimized. And all of a sudden Doug Som and Willie Nelson are taken as seriously as Jerry Jeff Walker or Michael Martin Murphy or, or, or uh, Willis Allen Ramsey are. So these kind of the folkies that are the big country people in modern Austin, all of a sudden had these two elders coming along, showing them how it's done. And Willie is flown up. Doug does his first album, does his album first in New York. And it's with Bob Dylan is, is on the album. I mean, Bob Dylan hadn't recorded in two or three years. This is a big deal. And he's got an all-star cast, all these heavyweights. And uh, Doug's record is fixing to come out, getting ready uh, to come out. And late in 1972, shortly after Willie meets Leon Russell and the big Thanksgiving Day jam, Willie and band go to New York. 
including Bobby, and record two albums in five days. This has never been done in Atlantic Studios before. No one's come close. Willie is basically making records like he did in Nashville. You know, you better do a song every three hours. That's what your studio time's booked for. So he goes in and and knocks out an album called Shotgun Willie and a second album, which becomes, is released later called The Troublemaker. It's a gospel album about Jesus. And what happens basically is Willie is shown the world. No, you don't have to rush in the studio. You can record all you want. And you know what? You can record whatever you want. It's the first album Willie does that has horns on it on, on a recording. So he's got horns, and it's it's different. And he's got all kinds of raucous, rollicking music. And, you know, he's sitting around trying to figure out what, what to write for this album. And, and the Holiday Inn where he's staying, he's sitting in the bathroom on the back of a, a tampon wrapper. He writes the song Shotgun Willie, which becomes the title song, which is all about sitting around trying to write a song. But it's got the song Me and Paul, which is a song about uh, him, him and his drummer, which is was already recorded for Yesterday's Wine. It's got Bob Will's music, Stay All Night, Stay a Little Longer. It's just eclectic as all get out. And it's a flop. It does nothing. It doesn't sell as good as his, his RCA albums do. But what it does do, it gets him a lot of airplay in Austin. And it helps make him a star in Texas because all of a sudden in Austin, there's a progressive country music radio station, a commercial station called Coke FM. And there's another one like it popping up in Dallas, KFM. And there's, there's a, there are programs that are playing progressive country or, or redneck rock, or whatever you want to call it in Houston, in San Antonio. And so the Atlantic album is a failure nationally, but it's a hit in Texas. And it puts Willie on the map. And he makes a second album, which is his second concept album. And it may be as good as his first concept album. It's called Phases and Stages. And it's about a man and a woman and their relationship and their divorce. And in fact, there's a single that he's recorded as well. After the Fire is Gone, that he records with Tracy Nelson, a rock singer from Mother Earth. Uh, the band Mother Earth has moved to Nashville to dabble in country. And their duet after the fire is gone is starting to creep up the top 40 country charts. It's made it into the top 40 of uh, country music singles. When Atlantic records finally decide, Jerry Wexler, you are so full of hot air. Doug Simon and Willie Nelson are not the way they're not going to make it. None of these other signs you've done. And they pulled the plug. And so the labels went away, which turned out to be, Pretty disastrous for Doug Somm because he ended up doing a one-off for Warner Brothers and then kind of struggling to find another label. But it was the best thing to happen to Willie Nelson because that led to a very standard contract, but with artistic control with Columbia Records. And then, then Willie started really diving deep as a recording artist. And before we get to that, I want to ask you about two things that he did in Austin around that time. The 4th of July picnic and the Austin City Limits TV show. Okay, yeah. So this period between Willie plays the Armadillo in 1972. He's been around town for not quite a year. He's going to stay now. He's, he's, he's in to stay. And in that two-year period, there's a lot starts to happen. 
And it's not just the armadillo. Early in 1972, before he played the armadillo, Willie played this. It was a uh, some Nashville promoters tried to organize a country music Woodstock in Dripping Springs, west of Austin. It was called the Dripping Springs Reunion. Loretta Lynn was on the bill, Ernest Tubb, Tex Ritter. But they also had some local acts, including Willie Nelson. They brought in Waylon, Waylon Jennings. Chris Christopherson was on the bill, who was just beginning to break out. Billy Joe Shaver was hanging out. But this Dripping Springs reunion was a terrible flop because it turns out country music fans really weren't much aligned towards sitting in a field, an open field, on July 4th weekend, drinking beer and getting sunburned. That, that wasn't their thing. Now, Willie had participated in that. And in fact, the best thing about the Dripping Springs reunion was the jam session afterwards at the house of Coach Daryl K. Royal, the, the football coach of University of Texas Longhorns, who's a country music fan. He had all these people over at his house, and Christofferson, Jennings, Shaver, and they get a, a guitar pool, pull, you know, song swap. And that really started this relationship with Coach Royal and Willie that persisted till Coach Royal's death. I mean, Coach Royal saw that, you know, this is this is beyond country music. These guys were starting something that was that was huge. And no one had any idea where it was gonna go. So Willie's played the armadillo August of seventy two, plays the uh, armadillo again, does a, a package tour with Michael Murphy across Texas. It's a flop. But come around June, no, actually it was May of nineteen seventy three, Willie says to Eddie Wilson of the Armadillo Remember that Dripping Springs Reunion? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd like to do that again, except do it my way. You want to work with me, promote it? Uh, They only had like, it was less than two months, but Wilson bought in, and so the Armadillo co-promoted with Willie's Country Western promoters that he worked with, his old uh, thieves, as they were called, because promoters sometimes had to skim and do whatever was necessary to get by. But this unholy alliance of, of Willie's promoter friends and the Armadillo promoted the Willie Nelson Fourth of July picnic, same side as the Dripping Springs reunion, but this time it was more rocked up. Jerry Jeff was on the bill, Doug Som was on the bill, more of Willie's friends. Over fifty thousand people turned out. They were hippies and they didn't mind sitting in the hot sun drinking beer because they could also smoke dope and they were probably dropping acid. It was just, it was wild. It was out of control. Uh, But it was a success other than, you know, the money never seemed to materialize. No one knew, was it the promoters had uh, taken the money? Was there, were there tickets that were scotted with? Did everyone jump in, jump the fence? Uh, That was actually the start of this standoff between Willie's promoters and those folks and his friends, if you want to call them that, and the armadillo people, because within about six months later, that alliance fell apart. Willie went his own way. The armadillo went their own way. But not until Waylon Jennings played the armadillo, Tom T. Hall played the armadillo, and the word was out in Nashville. Something's going on in Nashville. I mean, so the word was out in Nashville. Something's going on mm-hmm. in Austin. And now there's a radio station. There's a this outdoor festival. Uh, there's all this stuff going on and it's like, and, 
and we don't have a piece of it. And that's when things started getting interesting. And then they also put together a TV show that morphs into the Austin City Limits. How'd that work out? Okay. All during this period of time, between 72 and 74, it wasn't just people people like uh, Jerry Wexler coming to town. It was like everyone was discovering Austin, including, as I said before, Leon Russell. And what he brought to Austin was a video company. He had seen the future of music on television, on video, and started his own video crew. It was called Shelter Vision. Well, the Armadillo was already hip to video. Uh, their consigliere, Mike Tolleson, had seen Portapax in London at a Rolling Stones concert in 1969. So in 71, if you were at the Armadillo, 71, 72, 73, uh, they had courses where you could learn how to do video. And there were crews that started coming in and taping shows. And so there was a pilot that was a concert that was taped at the Armadillo by uh, the educational station for Austin and uh, San Antonio. It was called KLRN. They brought in a crew and uh, and taped this Armadillo Country Music Review, uh, Michael Murphy and uh, Willie Nelson. And they did a simulcast in Austin uh, and San Antonio on the FM stations. And, you know, they kind of thought this this has got some potential to it. And, you know, there's videotaping in Armadillo. Shelter Vision has got cameras all over town, and some of it winds up in an in, on an NBC special. It doesn't really turn out what it's supposed to be. But all that those little things kind of built into one. And Bill Arhos, uh, a producer at KLRN, had uh, pitched doing a pilot, and uh, uh, taping a pilot of music on television, to utilize this brand new television studio at the University of Texas, which was not being used. It was the biggest studio, television broadcast studio that had been built west of the Mississippi at the time. And it was empty. So, hey, let's put music in here. He kind of blew off the armadillo. We don't want to film there. We want to film in the studio. And I got two artists that were big on the scene. One was a singer that had a couple top 40 hits singing country rock, B.W. Stevenson. And B.W. had a uh, big hit with uh, My Maria, uh, which actually made it on the uh, on the top 40 charts. And then our host, being a country music fan, brought in Willie Nelson and his family band, who were pretty hot. And about this time, I'd see him for the first time, the family band, play on the back of a, um, a tractor trailer uh, uh, at a used car, uh, car lot. McMorris Ford hired Willie Nelson and family to play and show off the brand new 1974 Fords. This was October 73, and they were advertising free hot dogs and Cokes and balloons for the kids and live music, and it was Willie Nelson. It's free. And, you know, you went to this car lot, and you saw this band. And I remember seeing them, and they, they looked like a traditional band, other than the fact that they had some long hair uh, players, and they had two bass players and two drummers, which is pretty weird. But then I remember it was, I think it was Bloody Mary morning they were playing uh, one of Willie's songs. And about a minute into it, they started stretching out and then they started jamming. That song went on close to a half an hour. And that's when I realized something's happening and I was bearing witness to it. And so around this same time, Aros is pitching this idea and get some money from PBS and they do this 
demos. And it turns out, uh, this pilot, and it turns out B.W. Stevenson, for numerous reasons, uh, is unusable. A lot of technical glitches. He's not in a good way, and he's not in good health either. So let's go with this Willie Nelson guy. We'll just run this and see what happens. And they air it uh, locally, and, and it it's pretty good. It's so good that they use it as a fundraiser to raise money for the station. And then uh, within six months, the KLRN and KLR, KLRN splits. KLRN stays in San Antonio with this new studio. This, the channel in Austin becomes KLRU. Uh, they have this wonderful pilot. And the pilot has enough traction. It's like, let's try to do a series based on the same thing. Just let's film music in the studio. And the brilliance, I think, was uh, the director at the time, one of the directors was Bruce Scaife. And Bruce had come and he had done a uh, PBS music series uh, at Southern Illinois University. No big deal, but they needed programming during a PBS uh, strike. So his series got aired a lot and he just did straight on camera shots. Nothing fancy, no dissolves or any of that stuff. Just record the musicians playing, do a close up when they do solos and that's it. Well, that was the method applied to Austin City Limits when it first aired in the first season after Willie Nelson did the pilot in 1974. The season went uh, aired nationally 1975. And it wasn't just Willie. It was people like Doug Somm. Uh, it was the Texas Playboys. It was Clifton Chenier. It was a really good mix of all the, it was Towns Van Zandt, all, these, all the this music that was going on here. It was a very smart, done in a studio. Audience could come watch it for free. You could drink beer. You could smoke cigarettes. You could actually smoke weed there for the first two years. People just weren't that aware. But this series got some traction, and Austin City Limits became a thing. And I didn't realize it really until probably 10 or 15 years into it when a friend of mine in Memphis started quoting bands from Austin. And I realized this was his window into Austin. The series went through, it was early on, every year was, they didn't know if there would be a next year. So the producers basically cycled out the first two years. And the third year, there was a new talent director, talent coordinator, producer. And that cycled out. The fourth year, guy that had been hanging around uh, and working at a, uh, the radio station downstairs at KUT who had discovered Austin music and moved to Austin for the music. This guy named Terry Lacona talked his way in to producer basically because everybody else had cycled out and he was a lot cheaper and easier to use than having to bring in someone from somewhere else. And once Terry Lacona started producing Austin city limits, uh, he didn't stop. He remains the producer of Austin city limits. The longest running Music, television, longest running music series on television, period. The longest serving music television producer, period. This show, turns out, had legs, and it too defines what Austin and Austin music are all about. And if not for Willie, we wouldn't be talking about ACL. And of course, Willie's uh, second home away from home is the Moody Theater where Austin City Limits is filmed today. Um, it's his safe space. 
uh, Willie's Roadhouse on Sirius XM is recorded in the studio right next door. Uh, in fact, he, he and his nephew, Freddie Fletcher, have a piece of the action of the, the W Hotel and the Austin City Limits uh, Theater. Uh, so it's Willie's home away from home. Willie didn't just help build it. Willie actually owns part of it. Well, that's awesome, Joe Nick. And thanks so much for taking the time. And hopefully we can have you back on to cover the superstar period of Willie Nelson. It's talking about his rise and the way he built Austin Music. Thanks for listening. Next week, Joe Nick will be back to tell us about Willie's decades as a superstar, struggles with the IRS, and more. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nelson, An Epic Life is available from Little Brown and Company and can also be found wherever fine books are sold. Mm-hmm.